Blog Talk Radio. This is BC Radio Live with Philip and Eric. Live online at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio. Aloha. Tonight on BC Radio Live, we're going to check in with Nick Derringer, a Los Angeles band touring the East Coast right now. They're going on stage in New York in just over an hour, but we'll talk to them for a few minutes first. We're also going to talk with Howard Bihar. He's the former president of Starbucks Coffee. Joining them in 1989 and retiring in 2003. Now he's what he learned at Starbucks. It's called Not About the Coffee, Leadership Principles in Life at Starbucks. It is Wednesday, June the 11th, and this is BC Radio Live. The chat room is experiencing some difficulties, but we'll hopefully soon be open at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio. The live video feed is much the same. I am Philip Lynn, Chief Geek at BC Magazine, and I am joined tonight by Lisa McKay, Executive Editor of BC Magazine. Welcome, Lisa. Hey, Philip. Happy Wednesday. <laughs> yes. It would be happier if, uh, if I had an Internet connection. I'll tell you that right now. Well, our, uh, our, our normal partner, Eric Olson, has experienced some uh, travel delays today, is currently in the air instead of uh, where he should be behind the desk. He won't be able to join us this week. He should be back next week, however, for a very busy show. Uh, tonight's not quite so busy. And um, let's see, we would try to get things going if we had an Internet connection. How's your week been, Lisa? Uh, my week has been okay. We've actually uh, had our first heat wave of the season. Oh, now what you guys call a heat wave up there in the Northeast, I'm not sure if it would qualify down uh, down here in Texas where I'm at. Uh, well, it's probably not as hot. Um, I'll, I guess technically it's three days in a row of 90-plus degree temps. Oh, 90? 90's nothing. And uh, Well, of course, here 90-degree temperatures are almost always accompanied by really high humidity. Oh, well, that could be a problem. So, you know, it's not that dry heat thing you guys get out west. It's really kind of a steam bath. Well, fortunately, I have some Internet connectivity now. Otherwise, I'd uh, talk to you about 310 to Yuma, which I finally saw last night. But instead, let's go ahead and get things going with a song. Uh, This is Miss Derringer with Black Tears. from the band Miss Derringer. Their website is MissDerringer.com. That's M-I-S-S-D-E-R-R-I-N-G-E-R.com. Or 
myspace.com uh, slash Miss Derringer. They are currently touring the East Coast, as I mentioned earlier. In fact, they go on stage at the Annex in New York City in just about one hour from now, and they'll be touring uh, with Blondie starting Saturday or next week. Well, uh, welcome to the show, folks. Hey, thanks for having us. Right now, it's just Morgan. Like I said, we're on the street outside of the venue before we're playing, so we're going to have to pass the phone around. But thanks for having right. us. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you're on here. Now, I noticed uh, I was checking out your, your site earlier, and I, I was a little bit confused because your, your MySpace uh, records that you're going to be uh, touring start with Blondie starting next week, next Tuesday, and then another website I was sent by your PR person actually suggests this Saturday. So maybe you can kind of fill us in on, on what's trustworthy. Yeah, actually, I'm surprised that our site's wrong. Because <laughs> we actually did our first show with Blondie last night up in Kingston, up in ah. upstate New York. So we started officially, and we're doing a, a, just one of our own shows here in Manhattan um, on uh, one of Blondie's off days. So. Very nice, very nice. And so you guys uh, also have had some help with Blondie on your, your latest album, is that right? Um, on our last record, Lullabies, which came out a little while ago, uh, Clem Burke, the drummer from Blondie, played on about four different songs of ours, which was really cool for us. He's an amazing drummer and a really nice guy as well. Is that how you guys got in touch with that band? Or, uh, yeah, through... Go back farther? Um, yeah, no, we... Yes, we met Clem through Friends of Friends, and then uh, he played on it and interested the band. We actually did like a New Year's show with Blondie in Los Angeles a while back, and so... We met them all there, and they did this East Coast tour, and we were planning on going out to Canada for this uh, North by Northeast festival anyway, so they said, why don't you come along? So we are super, ha super happy to be along with them. You guys have a, a really wide range of uh, artwork, I noticed, too. You've, you've got some, some pretty strong symbolo symbology that's consistent in all your albums. You've got your, your crying bird. You've got the ghost army. I, I guess I'll, I'll ask about that in a little bit, but um, it does... Um, does Liz McGrath do all of your uh, your art for your projects? Um, she's done all the art on the album covers. I usually do um, all the design, like, uh, you know, posters and flyers and stuff like that. But, yeah, she definitely does a lot of the art. So, actually, she can talk to you about that right now because she's standing right here. Right. Is Liz McGrath. Hello? Uh, welcome, Liz, to BC Radio Live. Hi. Uh, I was just asking a bit about uh, art because I noticed uh, from checking out your MySpace that you've got some notes about limited edition T-shirts that you've designed, and uh, I was trying to figure out who's responsible actually for for all the art that I see. You've got some really beautiful stuff. Oh, thank you very much. Um, yeah, I, I actually the band kind of grew because I was an artist, and the art um, Longon John from Sympathy for the Record Industry was a big art collector, and he um, was coming to my house picking up a piece and. Morgan Slade, my husband, whom you just talked to, um, he was showing him a song, and he's like, great, here's some money, record a record, but give me the cover art. I was like, okay. <laughs> Very nice. Yeah. Now, do, do you find that, I mean, has the art really, in addition to that initial introduction, does it seem to help your band spread? Do people, you know, find out about the band through the art or vice versa? I, I think it's um, I think it's a little bit of both. I think when I started, when we started the band, it was definitely the art helping the band, but also before that I was in a, like, kind of semi-popular punk rock band, at least for L.A. City. It was, so I was in a band before that, so I think some of that carried over. But now definitely um, I, I think a lot of people don't know that I'm an artist, and then vice versa, a lot of people that know me as an artist don't know that I'm a musician. So I think the two definitely help each other. 
Tell me a little bit about the uh, the Ghost Army. Oh, well, the Ghost Army was Morgan's creation. <laughs> I should, I'd have to get Morgan to explain that to you, but um, I, I, he just got really into. Um, I think he was watching some late night Japanese, like old school anime, and there was some kind of Ghost Army. I don't, I don't exactly know how it how it grew, but that's that's one of the uh, theories. Do, do you want me to pass the phone on to him? Sure, we can do that. All right, hold on a second. Uh, tell him about the Ghost Army. Hello? Yes, hello. Hey, this is Morgan. Ghost Army. Oh, the Ghost Army was just, uh, what is the Ghost Army? Ghost Army is like, started, we, this little girl in uh, England actually started promoting us and just kind of spreading our name around, started in a group and everything. So we came up with the idea for the Ghost Army, which is basically it's a kind of fan, fan club or organization of people that are into Miss Derringer, I guess, and uh, spread the word. It's so much more exciting than Miss Derringer Street Team, I guess. Yeah, I guess that's what it is. Maybe a hopefully cooler name than Street Team. <laughs> now, how how would you describe your music? I after listening to uh, you know the couple of songs on your new EP, and then also the uh, the UK remix of of Black Tears, I found mm-hmm. myself having a little difficulty pigeonholing you. Yeah. Uh, well, hopefully that's a good thing. <laughs> we don't want to be pigeonholed, but. Uh, yeah, I don't know. We we have a lot of different um, influences from like old country music to like kind of obviously like early '60s girl group stuff, the Shangri-Las and the Ronettes and stuff like that. So um, I don't know. Somewhere we there. Some people have uh, called defined us as a haunted house on the prairie, and uh, some people have called said that we're kind of like Patsy Cline meets Bauhaus. I don't know. Take that for whatever it's worth, I guess. You know, on that note, I think I should probably play a sample of Heartbreak and Razor Blades. So, uh, folks, here's Heartbreak and Razor Blades from Miss Derringer. We found him late last night Lying on his side With a note by his side And I tried to block the sight from my mind But those tears in his eyes come to me every night Well, that was Heartbreak and Razor Blades from Miss Derringer. It kind of gives you, I think, maybe a little bit of an idea of where some of the the country or Patsy Cline uh, influence is heard. Now, uh, you guys, uh, one of the the items that I know is uh, on your MySpace and uh, really quite interesting is is a remix of your title track of Black Tears. How did you end up hooking up with uh, CCK to do that remix? Oh, um, how did we hook up with CCK? That's a good question. I think they he contacted us uh, through MySpace a while ago, and uh, he did some remixes of some other bands. There's a band called IMX that's from Europe that we did some shows with, and it's uh, the singer of a band called Sneaker Pimps. I don't know if you remember the Sneaker Pimps. Yep. But um, uh, the singer's name's Chris Corner. He has a new band called IMX. 
he's out of England, and we played a bunch of shows with them, and he's friendly with these uh, DJs, and they'd remix some of his stuff and sound us that way. And we've always kind of been interested in the idea of doing a remix uh, of one of our songs, just because our music seemed like, to us at least, like not the normal kind of music that gets remixed, I guess. So we were inter- interesting to see. We were interested to see what would what would come out of it, and uh, that's what came out of it. I thought we think it's pretty cool. It's a super uh, '80s new wavy kind of a thing, which we we kind of like. Well, I do actually have a sample of that we can close with, uh, but I just kind of want to find out now about your tour. Let, let's let's go ahead and kind of plug your tour. You're you're performing tonight in about it looks like an hour or just under an hour to go on stage. Right. But you're going to be in in Toronto. Uh, on well, see, I'm not sure whether to trust the dates on the MySpace now, but so you're in Toronto, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, uh, all before the end of June. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. We uh, our last show is here back in New York again at the Nokia Theater in Times Square with uh, with Blondie, and then we're back to the West Coast and uh, to work on a new record, which is all uh, all written and uh, has some studio time booked up. So. So uh, Black Tears and Heartbreak and Razor Blades are going to find their way onto the new album, I hope? Yeah, those are going to be on the new record, and uh, we've got eight or ten other new ones, uh, so it should be good. It's going to be called Winter Hill, and hopefully it'll be out um, beginning of next year. Very good. Well, hopefully we can have you back on then. Yeah, that'd be great. And uh, so the band is Miss Derringer. The website is myspace.com slash Derringer. And uh, thanks very much to you guys for walking around the New York City sidewalk and talking with us tonight. Of course. Anytime. Thanks for having us. No problem. And uh, let's listen to a little bit more. This is actually the, uh, the uh, remix to Black Tears by a UK DJ named uh, CC, uh, CCK. Again, the band is Miss Derringer. The website is myspace.com slash Miss Derringer. Thanks very much for talking with us tonight, and uh, rock on out there, all right? Thanks a lot. All right. Well, just a reminder for those of you tuning in, this is BC Radio Live. I'm Philip, and my co-host tonight is Lisa. And uh, shifting gears quite a bit, let's talk about coffee. Or uh, rather, let's not talk about coffee, since the former president of Starbucks claims it's not about the coffee. That's the primary title of the book, at least, uh, with the secondary title of Leadership Principles from a Life at Starbucks. I'm talking about Howard Bihar, who joined Starbucks in 1989 when they had only 28 stores, if you can believe that's ever been true, and managed to make it the household name it is today before uh, his retirement just a few years ago in 2003. He's here with us tonight to talk about his new book. Welcome to BC Radio Live, Howard. Thank you very much. 
Well, I'm not sure what kind of influence you might still have at the company, so I personally want to be really careful with my questions. I've, I've got a brother who's a barista, so I don't want to get him no in No influence, you know. I'm, a, I'm the old retired guy now. <laughs> well, very good. Now, I know, Lisa, you, you've been reading uh, reading over his book, going through a, a bunch of his things. I know you've had some experiences at, uh, at your day job that really, really make you wish that a few people had read Howard's book. Uh, this is this is very true. Howard, welcome to the show. Um, Thanks, I'm sorry to say that I actually wasn't able to get a copy of your book into my hands, but I did spend a good part of my afternoon at your website, and you've you've got a lot of information there, including uh, your ten principles of personal leadership, which I I think are um, probably the core of of what your book is about. True. That's true. And. If I could boil those down to their essence without going through them one by one, they're really, it seems to me, more or less about being true to yourself, being honest, and treating other people the way you would like to be treated. Is that kind of a, a fair way to that's describe it? it? That's it. It's, that's, it's, you know, at, at the end, that's that's where it begins and that's where it ends. So what was it about your experience at Starbucks that led to the development of this philosophy? Do you think that there was something already unique about the culture there or how how did you how did you grow this well i think part of it i brought with me you know i think that like all of us you know we're <clears throat> we're creatures of life's lessons and over time you know we learn as we grow and we have mentors and teachers and parents and family that teach us lots about life's le- a lot about life's lessons and mm-hmm. so some much of the much of the things that are part of this book you know, I brought with me, and Starbucks became that great uh, opportunity for me to to prove out things that I really believed in. So, how can you talk a little bit about how these principles then actually apply? And feel free to use Starbucks as an example if you'd like about how they actually apply in the day-to-day running of a business. Sure. I mean, it, you know, I think that not only in a business, but in the day-to-day running of your own life, you know, because everything mm-hmm. starts with an individual. I think the, the the first principle is basically says, know who you are, wear one hat, which really what that means is is that you've got to take the time to think about the things that matter to you. What are your values? What do you want out of life? How do you want to live your life? You know, what do you want to accomplish? And, you know, basically values, purpose, and goals. And then and then when you do that, you know, if you're really good at it, I think that you're able to find the energy and passion to do the great things that you want to do. But without that, you're kind of always just drifting. Right. It's sort of like your personal mission statement, basically. Yeah, exactly. It's like your personal mission statement. And, you know, many times people, you know, rail at that because they say, well, God, what? people don't have mission statements. You know, companies have mission statements. But... You know, it's that's just a word, but it's really about who you are. You know, what matters to you, and most of us don't spend the kind of time that we need to in thinking about that and writing those things down and being clear about them and honest with ourselves. And you know, each of us has our own little board of directors in in, in the business term, and they sit on our shoulders. You know, and they're the multiple voices that are talking to us all day long. Mm-hmm. And you know, they're talking many times about different things and. Uh, and it's who we listen to, which one of those board members we listen to in our lives that really count. Well, let me, can I, if I can, I'd like to push back on that a little bit. Um, sure. 
you talk about having like a, a personal mission statement, and the idea is that you know you know who you are, that that you only do the things basically that are, you know, that are consonant with that, that you you don't try to branch out beyond what you're capable of or what your interests are, what your mission is. Um, but I just wonder for for people who don't manage to uh, to wander in as a relatively in a relatively high management position of an up and coming company. I think many of us have the experience of, you know, I, I kind of have this idea of how I would like to be as a person, but for right now I'm, I'm earning eight bucks an hour as a barista or, um, or worse if, if people are, you know, not, not enough to work at Starbucks. I don't, I mean, I, I'll, I'll push back a little bit myself. I, I'm not talking about, you know, this is about what your values are. Right about the things that matter to you in your life, about how you're going to live your life, not specifically what you're going to do. It's it's the point here is not whether you want to be an artist or you want to be a fireman or uh, you know a policewoman or whatever it is that you want to be in your life. The point is is how do you want to live your life, and then what are the things that interest you in life? And all of us, I think, at one time or another, work you know take work just for work's sake because we got to put mm-hmm. some food on the table or you know we got to pay for rent or clothing or whatever it happens to be but that that over the long term shouldn't get in the way of having a purpose to your life that's bigger than yourself and even if you're a barista let's just take the job of being a barista at Starbucks it's a critical job because it's the front line it's the people that are serving and you know, even when you're serving a cup of coffee, people would say, it's, well, it's just a cup of coffee. But the truth of the matter is you're, you're coming into – you have interaction every day with lots of people. And you have an opportunity to help them have a better day. Sometimes it's just with a smile. Sometimes it's with conversation or whatever it happens to be. To, in essence, to be of service to other people. I used to say – to our people, you're really kind of like social workers. You know, you got about <laughs> 10 seconds to figure out, uh, diagnose the issues with the person in front of you, and and then respond, so to speak, accordingly to help that person. And uh, I know it's kind of an odd thing to think about, but it it really does it works that way. I absolutely agree. I just I, I was looking, I guess, in there for some ideas. You know, the, the, to a certain extent, there's a long-term aspect of it. You don't always get to make, you don't always get to be who you are in every detail all the time. So long as you you keep the big picture in mind. Sure. And uh, like you said, but you can live your values. I mean, you, if yeah. you come to an, an organization that's dishonest, for example, where the people that you report to or the organization is not honest, you have to find a way to get out of there. Or change the organization, which is extremely difficult to do. But you have those kinds of choices in your life. I really liked the uh, the third thing on your list, where where you say the person who sweeps the floor should choose the broom, because right. I think that really speaks a lot to sort of empowering people from the ground up. Uh, well, I agree. I think that uh, I mean. I think all of us, not just business, but all organizations, and I include families in that, are guilty of of trying to um, not only say, here's your job, but here's exactly how I want you to do it, and here's the broom to use. When mm-hmm. if, if we would get out of the way and say, look, this is what we're trying to accomplish, or this is what's expected of you, even in a family situation, and then say, look, I trust you to use your good judgment 
to decide which broom to use or how to do it. I mean, right. I can't tell you how many times, you know, I mean, in organizations I've been, I've been guilty of it, you know, many times of, of pushing too hard and, and with my beliefs or my ideas and not letting people figure out the way to do it on their own. It's amazing what can happen when you get out of the way. Well, I think it certainly allows people to figure out what their own strengths and weaknesses are and and to capitalize on those. And I can certainly see that looking at it from the from the viewpoint of an employee of a business that was run that way, that it would be a much more satisfying experience than being given, you know, a list of things to do and and directions as to how to accomplish them. I, I think that um the average person thinking about businesses in general probably thinks that the only thing that matters is the bottom line. And a lot of what you have here really sounds to me like the the image that flashed through my head when I read this, and and I mean this in a a very complimentary way, was it's a wonderful life. (laughs) (laughs) I know what you mean. It it really sort of made me think of, you know, the daily savings and loan and it's sure. really kind of a kind of a mom and pop ethic almost to, to doing business. Do you think that that's something that a lot of corporate America is really sort of missing the boat on? And I, I'm assuming that because you, you took the time to write this book, you're you obviously must feel that there's a, a real need for this out there somewhere. Yeah, I, I operate on two levels here. One, I think there are more organizations that live this way than we give credit for being. And on the other hand, there's too many that don't and too many that want to control people's lives. I mean, if you look at the field of technology, I mean, you look at all these bright young people coming out of universities and going to work for the Googles of this world or even the the, the people that created Google. I mean, you know, they were students. I mean, the the, the day of trying to control people at all levels I think is disappearing very quickly. If if we want to get we want to get the most we want to grow our businesses, right? We want productivity. Um, you know, we have to have profit because that's what keeps the engine running. If we don't have it, it doesn't work. But at the end of the day, it's the people that make it happen. And the leader's responsibility is to really serve those people. And look, and at the end, I believe in performance. I'm I'm a capitalist pig with the best of them. I like. I, I, the fun of making money, the fun of having a business that's successful, I mean, it, it's, it is interesting and it's fun. But if we do it on the backs of people or we do it by manipulating people, then it's not worth it. And, and it won't work over the long term. And I, and I think that what we're seeing in this country today and I think across the world is that there, there's people are demanding and they're getting the opportunity to be creative to do great things, and to work in organizations that honor who they are. So is it a wonderful world? It's not there yet. Would I like it to be? Yes. Do I believe it will be uh, for everybody? No. But I think we can do a lot more. Yeah, well, I would agree with that. So would you say that, that companies that, that follow these sorts of principles then, that, that you know stay true to a focus, that value their employees, that you know communicate honestly, um, you know that that they are going to have an advantage in the marketplace as a result because of motivated employees because of creative ideas, or or is it or is there still more to that 
so that a company could follow these principles and still end up having their their lunch eaten by another company. Oh yeah, I think both. I think you know I don't think it's an either or. I think it's both. I think you're right. I think doing the right thing doesn't guarantee you economic success because there's lots of other things that that take place, right in in the real world. But on the other side of that coin, I think you're going to be able to attract the, attract the best and brightest people when you honor these kinds of principles. And there's a, a man named Robert Greenleaf who in the 60s worked for AT&T. And he, he worked in the business side, and then he became the head of organizational development. And he, after he retired, he was 66 years old, he wrote a little treatise on leadership, and he coined the term servant leadership. And he really flipped on, on its head the idea of what leadership is really about. And um, it, it, the idea that, that, like what I said before, is that leaders are there to serve. That we're there to knock down the hurdles that get in the way of people being able to use their creativity and make something happen with an organization. And I just think we're going it, it, to, in the, in the future, in the near-term future, we're going to see more and more of that. I mean, transparency is the word of the day. You can't hide anymore. Right? I mean, look at the world. Look at what's on the Internet. You know, and it's going to be the organizations that, that I think honor their people, live in the right way, that are going to have the best chance of success. Does that mean they'll all be successful because they do this? No. It won't happen. Right. Yeah, it's probably pretty much a given for any company in 2008 that half of their employees or more have a blog. Yeah. So. So whatever happens at work they don't like is going to end up on the Internet somehow. Yeah, exactly. It's always going to be out there, and it's going to be a dialogue. And, you know, that's the way that life is, right? Are you always happy if you have a significant other or a spouse that you live with? Are you always happy every night when you go home? Is life just perfect and your communication just excellent? No, it isn't, <laughs> right? It's the way It's the way of human beings. And I think mm-hmm. the more we get on with that, of being able to communicate with each other, being able to talk openly and honestly even when we disagree, and finding ways uh, to accomplish things together even when there's disagreement, even in a family. That's what makes life worth living and makes it better. How much were you influenced by Robert Greenleaf? Because I know his, his, most of his stuff came out in, in the 70s, I would say. Yes, that's right. Uh, uh, greatly. Uh, it, it was, um, I had a mentor give me this little orange pamphlet about that he wrote and it was a ri- his original treatise on servant leadership mm. and i read that and i just thought wow you know i wanted i mean my personality was such that you know i was i i, kind of, I always tilted that way but i never had any words to put to it i didn't i didn't really understand what it meant i didn't know how do you make this happen and with inside of organizations how do you how do you make it happen in your family and so yeah no question greenleaf's work and and the people that wrote about Greenleaf, uh, a guy named uh, James Autry who wrote the book Love and Profit, and he wrote a book on servant leadership. I mean, people like that have had tremendous influence, and I think they proved to me that it could be done, you know? How much of of what you're writing about in this book and just the idea of servant leadership and uh, the principles that that you've outlined, do you know, are they still in play at Starbucks after your departure? Because, I mean, you've been gone from the company – I guess in an active daily basis for about five years. Right. Although I guess are you still involved as a director or? I still. I just. I had. Yeah. I just retired from the board a month ago, so I had my last board okay. meeting. I, I think that it's like any organization. 
they are it is there are bastions of it inside the organization and areas where they're not. I mean, anytime you have an organization the size of Starbucks, you know, with globally, you know, probably well in excess of 250,000 people, you know, you're going to have all different things going on. There's never it's never one way, no matter how much you'd like it to be like that. And uh, which, in a sense, is good. You know, it's a conflict that makes things better. But I think, I think overall, Starbucks pretty much lives by its values. You know, do we make, did we make mistakes? I use the word we still. But did we make a lot of mistakes? You bet. Will we continue to make mistakes? You bet. Will we always um, uh, treat people with respect and dignity in the way they wanted to be? No. But I think that it's, it's, um, it's kind of a, it's. It's a view of how we want to be, and I think that the leadership of Starbucks has always been open to question from the people that work inside the organization, and I think sometimes we've listened well and sometimes we haven't. But, you know, we have this, we have this what I call our hat or, or a big hairy audacious goal that Jim Collins calls it, you know, mm-hmm. and that's uh, to be one of the most well-known and respected organizations in the world known for nurturing and inspiring the human spirit. I mean, known for nurturing and inspiring the human spirit. I don't know of any for-profit organization that I've ever seen that kind of statement. And we try to measure ourselves by that, you know. And uh, do we always succeed? No. But I think that at the end of the day, that it's a place, it's our roots. We can always go back to it, and we know when we're off track. Now, I mentioned earlier when introducing you, when you started with the company, there were 28 stores and. I just I really have a hard time wrapping my mind around that. I think that there are 28 stores within, say, 12 miles of my house. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's true. Started, yeah, you started as the the vice president of sales oper- sales and operations, right. and it, your bio mentions that you grew the business from 28 stores to more than 400 stores before being named president. Uh, and then even after that, you you know spread Starbucks across Asia, you know the UK, um, and then came back here. How many stores were there at your retirement? After going from 28 to, to I guess counting. Uh, well, I retired I mean, I guess, the second time in 2003. I am gonna I, I am gonna guess there were about um, seven or eight thousand stores. Wow. <laughs> You know, it's, it's just numbers. It doesn't mean anything. It's still, at the end of the day, it's one person, one cup of coffee at a time. So this doesn't make any difference how many stores you have. You know, there's good to it and there's bad to it with it. You know, and sure. But it's um, it was an it was an amazing journey. I mean, nobody, none of us ever thought. I was trying to escape corporate life. To tell you the truth, I'd been president of a land development company, and. Um, I wanted. I just didn't want to live like that anymore, and so this was an opportunity for me to be with a, a company that I loved. I'd been a customer for 17 years, and to be part of something that I thought was unique. And we ne- we didn't have any idea that we'd be this big. We thought we'd be maybe 100, 200 stores. <laughs> well, one of the challenges that comes with having seven or eight thousand stores uh, has to do with one of the principles you talk about, which is which is to listen. Uh, putting putting time into listening, you know, letting the walls talk, listening to customers, to employees, all that sort of thing. I mean, I, I can't even begin to imagine how do you accomplish that task of listening when you're dealing with, you know, 250,000 employees around the world? Well, I mean, every chance you get, you ask questions. 
I mean, basically, that's what I did for a living. You know, my my I had two things. I had to ask a lot of questions and listen to people. I had to take what they told me, try to synthesize it, try to find find the truth in there. You know, enough people talk to you about something. Usually, there's something there. And and then you know, my second job was to help grow the people, to help them become better people. And my nighttime job was the numbers. You know, it was all the it was the stuff taking out the garbage, so to speak. But everything else revolved around people. Listen to them and help them grow. And that's what you got to do. And that's what you do every day, every minute of every day. And that's how you make it happen. It's the people that grow the business, not you. As a leader, as a leader, you help to grow them, and you set into motion, you know, the values of the organization and the vision of the organization. But you do it with them, and then you you help them to do the job that they're there to do, and you help them choose the broom that they want to use, and you get out of their way. And when they have a problem, you're right there. And when they make a mistake. You're right there to pick them up and say, let's try it again. And that's about what you can do. Does that pay off in um, better employee retention for the company? Sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely it does. Do you have some sense of the, of, you know, people coming in at, you know, let's say a fairly ground level job at Starbucks? and liking it and then deciding that they're empowered enough to sort of move their way up the up the corporate ladder? Do you have a lot of people who are in it for the long haul? Oh, yeah. I, I don't know the numbers anymore, but, I mean, if you knew how many people that came in as a barista and ended up being store managers and district managers, you wouldn't believe it. I mean, it's just tons. I yeah, mean, it's in, it's in the organization's self-interest to do that, you know. I mean, you get great people. You get to see them in action, and so it's really important. But, yeah, that works. I don't think at the end of the day that you do these things because of that, but I think that's an outcome. Yeah. Do you do you meet with much resistance? I know that you, I know that you speak to groups of, of leaders in, in corporate life and whatnot. Do you meet much resistance to these ideas from, from people? Uh, that people not are a, ready? No. I don't. I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of organizations that just don't know what to do or how to do it. I mean, you certainly meet with some that you know. Particularly, usually, what the excuse is or what I hear is, "Oh, this is just a bunch of soft stuff." I understand what you're trying to do, but at the end of the day, it's performance that counts, you know. And so we got to make you know we got to make that happen. And I call BS on that right away. Mm-hmm. You know, they say, "Of course, performance counts," but that that do you go home at night and and treat your kids terribly? Right, because you want performance, you know, you wouldn't, and, or or your, or your significant other spouse terribly. No, you don't. I mean, some people do, I suppose, but 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 you don't. So it's treating people like human beings, and performance comes from that. I mean, we're all accountable. I'm accountable at home. I have responsibilities here that that we've been. I've been married for 33 years, or 30 31 years, and been together for 33 years, and I'm in my mid 60s. I have responsibility at home. And things that I need to do, little jobs, big jobs, whatever they happen to be, just like my wife Lynn does, and and we share those things. And so I have to, in essence, perform. So, but we love each other, and we hug each other, and we care about each other. And uh, 
that's what organizations should be like family or work it doesn't make any difference and we still and yet we need to not only commit to performance be accountable and demand performance from each other they go together they're not separate one of the principles I think that hit me the most, I, I have to confess, I've read a lot of management books. And so, you know, some of the themes you see are common. Some of them are, I think, sometimes a little too soft or a little too hard, making absolutely no allowance for individuality. Um, but one of the things I liked was that, uh, you know, the principles do tend to the soft side. I mean, they tend to be maybe sure. more mush on the mushier side. Yep. But you've got right in there, you know, um, the, the phrase was, I uh, think, think like a person of action and uh, act like a person of thinking or thought. Right. And uh, it, w- it, was, it was actually, you know, right buried in the middle of, of what might be seen as too mushy is this idea that, you know, all of these nice thoughts aren't worth a, a bucket of one spit, I guess, if, uh, if you don't actually do something with them. Yeah. I mean, you can say, you know, you can come every day, come home every, every night and say, I love you and give a great big hug. And and don't pick up your socks and don't bring a paycheck home and don't do the things that you're responsible for doing and you're going to have tough marriage, right? Whatever the whatever your commitments are, and so they go together, right? It's I you know I I know I hear that and I I believe look at the end of the day it's to me it's about the four P's right? It's about purpose, passion, uh, persistence, and performance. And they all go together, and they're not separate from each other. The idea that somehow you can't treat people well and demand results, uh, that those two things don't go together is just a fallacy. It's old school as far as I'm concerned. The, the last principle in your book is, uh, is dare to dream and has to do with setting big goals, big dreams, big hopes, big joys. I guess looking back on your Starbucks experience, of course, setting these big goals, these these BHAGs, the big, hairy, audacious goals that you talked about. Right. Um, what <laughs> the the issue is if you set enough of those, obviously some of them will fail. You'll fall short. I mean, I, sure. that's that's simply a, a matter of life. What what would you say in the time that you were at Starbucks? What was the the biggest goal that you that you as a team that you guys set? that you managed to not accomplish? Um, we had this big idea for a bottled beverage called Mazagran. And we invested not only a lot of time, but a lot of money, and it was a joint venture with Pepsi-Cola. And we were just sure that thing was going to take off like a rocket. It was, uh, you know, basically it was a coffee soda. And we huh. tasted it, and we loved it. And the thing was an abject failure. It was a total blowout failure. I have a I have one of the bottles that I put in plastic so I could always remind myself, and that was just one of them. But and you know we moaned and groaned and we felt terrible about it and thought how could we be so dumb? At the end of the day, it spawned another beverage that was in a bottle that's turned out to be a blowout success. So um, and you know we've had successes and failures and all sorts of things and it's it's just the journey. It's just the journey. I mean, I'd like to tell you that we celebrated every every failure as much as we should have, but we didn't. Uh, we tried to so that we would learn from them, or that we celebrated every success as much as we should do. We didn't do that either. But we set big goals, and and uh, whatever a big goal is, you know, a big goal to me is a, a small goal to somebody else, or maybe a big goal to me is huge to somebody else. But 
it, it's doing that and, and giving it your best, and at the end of the day, you know, enjoying that journey along the way and learning from it. Well, I think for me it's just nice to know that Starbucks actually does make mistakes. Because oh, part of me? what I think runs through the back of some people's minds is, well, Starbucks has, seems to be, you know, nonstop successes one after another, but I've never even heard of this Mazagran, and I'm a fan of both Starbucks and Pepsi. So Yeah, so, I, I mean, you know, we've tried chocolate things. I mean, you know, we get in trouble all the time with, uh, particularly in areas of, uh, of social responsibility where we're just not listening and we've got to backtrack and correct. I mean, it's just, it's, it's just a journey. It's just always going on every day. And so you don't you don't hear about all the mistakes, but but they're there. Trust me. <laughs> Very nice. I, I have to assume after after listening to all this that um, the phrase "it's it's not personal, it's business" doesn't really fit into your worldview anyplace. Not at all. It's always personal. I, yeah, I, I think that uh, I, I've probably you know I've heard that often enough in my own life. And um, it's it's nice to know that there are at least some people out there who are thinking in other directions. Well, together, the three of us, we can begin to change the world. It is all personal. It's all about the people. You know, and I just don't want any gap between how I live my life at home and how I live my life at work. Mm-hmm. I can only live one way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny that you put it that way because I was just thinking I, I've known at least one corporate CEO who also would, would not say it's business, it's not, you know, it's business, it's not personal. He, in fact, was bitterly vindicative uh, both personally within, you know, with his company. He would actually hurt his own company in order to spite someone else. And then, oh, well, I, was, I don't mean personal that way. <laughs> well, no, it's just funny. I mean, he, he – he took it the other extreme, and then as I was thinking of that, you said you don't want to live any differently, you know, at home than you do at work. And I and I realized, you know, he's he's been divorced three times, and um, yeah, right. <laughs> I thought, you know, again, here's someone who's taken every principle you've got and turned it on its ear. But uh, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the way it is, right? I mean, it, that's the way it is. You could take all of this and flip it, you know, and and uh, you know, and it's unfortunate that people people get in positions of responsibility and leadership and power and they live like that. I mean, you know, shame on us. <laughs> well, you've been our guest for quite the last little bit of time. We had a cancellation earlier today and I don't think we had a chance to let you know that we were hoping to talk to you longer than, than we'd initially expected. So I really appreciate you, uh, you hanging out with us and chatting with us for a while. Thanks for the opportunity. There's nothing more than I like talking about people and what we could do. So I appreciate the time. Very nice. Well, Howard Bihar has been our guest. Uh, He is the former president of Starbucks. He worked with them for about 15 years. And his book is called It's Not About the Coffee, Leadership Principles from a Life at Starbucks. He's also a speaker. In fact, he's going to be speaking in Seattle tomorrow and next week and a few other places. Uh, Check out howardbihar.com. That's H-O-W-A-R-D. B-E-H-A-R.com for more about that, to see a little bit more about the book, and, of course, order your copy. Uh, Thanks very much again for spending time with us. Thank you. Well, Lisa, we come to the end of another show. We've actually got a few minutes left, and I'm going to bend the rules here and ask you. Now, um, 310 to Yuma, I just watched it last night. You were a fan of that movie, yes? Uh, Is this the, the, the Russell Crowe one? This is a Russell Crowe, Christian Bale movie, yeah. No, I've, I've not seen it yet. 
You haven't? I have oh, not. Oh, come on. You, you must rectify that situation. It Do was, not spoil it was me. A, it was, it I, was quite a good movie. I will put it right in my Netflix queue even as we speak. Well, I will return mine to Netflix tomorrow, and maybe you'll get the same disc. Oh, well, there you go. You think they travel across the country? Yeah, I, do- I doubt that. I think we're, yeah, we're different enough too. geographically. You'll probably get a different copy. Excellent movie. Just... I have to say, in terms of foreshadowing and not, not wanting to spoil anything for you, let's just say that very early on in the movie, I said, you know, I got a feeling so and so is not going to be a- a- alive by the time this film ends. And you know, my prediction may have been accurate. And you were good on that, huh? Yeah. Just... Yeah. We're and yet, even even as even as predictable as one or two things might have been, maybe it was it was an excellent film. I'm sorry I waited so long to see it, and especially sorry you've waited. Yeah, well, you know, we're just catching up now. Um, we we finally this past weekend got around to seeing two of the the big Oscar flicks from last year, uh, Juno and There Will Be Blood, neither of which we had seen in the theaters. Wow, yeah, I I, uh, I like Juno. Uh, I've still not seen There Will Be Blood, so I guess I can't really talk, can I? Uh, no, but note. you really need to put that one in your Netflix queue. Okay, I'm, I'm making a note one. right now. Right now, There Will Be Blood. I, 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 okay. found, I found Juno to be a tad overrated, but enjoyable. I, I think it may have something to do with the fact that you weren't, um, perhaps the Ellen Page character wasn't quite as appealing to you as she was to say someone more in my position, which is to say a guy with the brain of a 20-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> I won't deny that there was a certain amount of appeal just in, the, uh, just in the character herself as a person, as an actress. I found the character very appealing. I actually had, I had, some, um, I had an issue actually with the, with the Michael Cera character, Polly. Really? Uh, yeah. Um, and I actually found it... Um, Sort because of he was underused or because? No, because he pretty much uh, got to, uh, you know, waltz through this entire experience uh, pretty much pain-free. Um, right. And so the idea to... being here, he, he ended up, uh, well, he, he had sex with Juno, impregnates her. Then she essentially ignores him, or you could say, I guess, that he ignores her for roughly nine months. And, yeah, and then I guess basically he's out of it until he shows up at the hospital. Yeah. At the, uh, at the very end of the movie. Hmm. Yep. Ends up, with, ends up with the girl. I mean, he's obviously still in her good graces at the end of the movie. And, so the uh, idea is because he ends up with the girl but not the baby, this, yeah. this somehow results this is him getting away scot-free. Yeah, and, you know, I just sort of, I, I try to sort of think of, uh, the parental the parental role in all of this. I I thought that uh, Alice and Janney and um, boy I'm playing on the J.K. yeah mm-hmm. were just terrific as as the, mm-hmm. as the mom and dad. Um, I have to sort of think, and if, I mean you know I've I've raised a son and and no daughters. Um, I have to think that if I I had a pregnant teenage daughter, um, I. I'd really want the guy to, you know, sort of man up at that point and at least be present in some form while all of this was going on. 
Yeah, I, I seen from that perspective, uh, you know, when you put it that way. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, I definitely could see that. I guess, I guess when I was watching the movie, the reason that didn't raise any flags for me, and in the interest of disclosure, uh, listeners may not know, I have two daughters and one son, all much younger than yours, uh, your son. Um, the, the thing I thought that they were dealing with is that Juno is an exceptionally strong-willed young woman. Um, this is true. You know, there were a couple of little lines where, for example, you know, J.K. Simmons muses to his wife at one point, you think he thinks it was his idea? I mean, they seem to be well aware that, that Juno orchestrated everything about the relationship from beginning to end, including the impregnation. Um, and, I, and I think having a, having a daughter who is much like her mother, um, myself, I can almost understand where yeah, wow, it's just hard to push up against something like that. <laughs> Maybe, but no, I, I do know what you mean. On the other hand, if, uh, you know, so I, I guess that's why I kind of let that go, was just the thought that she didn't want him to be involved, therefore yeah. he wasn't involved. And if she had, I suspect he would have been. But yeah. maybe, I'm, maybe I'm being too gracious. Anyway, I found it a de- delightful movie. Um, it may have been overrated. I didn't watch it until uh, till it was a rental, and so I kind of missed some of the hype at that point. But uh, I thought it was I thought it was cute. I tell you that my favorite scene in the movie was when um, Juno approaches her father, who's doing some kind of handiwork at the the kitchen table, and she she says she says to him, you know, I need you to tell me, I need you to give me hope. I need you to tell me that there's there's something out there. There's something that you know, that a relationship, any relationship can work. And um, yeah. and so he, he says, look, I'm, you know, I'm not going to deny it. I've, I've screwed up, obviously. But, you know, I, I, really, I really believe it can work. Gives her, gives, I think, some encouraging words. And then just as she's about to head out the door, he gets this, wait, you were talking about me, right? <laughs> and gets this, this wry smile on his face. And I thought, oh, that man just earned himself an award of some kind. Yeah, that was a that was a really good scene, and like I said, I thought the parents were just like, I think for me they were the more believable characters. Yes, I think absolutely. the other thing I found a little unbelievable was that I think I, I probably knew a couple of girls, sort of like Juno when I was in high school, to the mm-hmm. extent that they were, you know, kind of precocious and really sort of hip beyond their years, and. You know, they they were having sex with with you know twenty year old college boys. Right. They, you know, they weren't. They the weren't. The idea that she would pick a scrawny guy her own age is maybe. Yeah, hot. yeah, a, a scrawny and you know really somewhat sort of unappealing, on some level, guy her own age. Right. He's um, funny to us because we're not actually dating him. This is true. I mean, he's obviously, you know, probably the the same age as my son, and so I just sort of look at him and see kid, and I'm <laughs> obviously a 16 year old girl would sort of look at him and see guy. So mm. yeah, I do, I do sort of get that. <laughs> well, I will uh, I will definitely check out. There will be blood. I do I do earnestly suggest you uh, check out 310 to Yuma. Quite an enjoyable film. I will do and, that. Uh, and, and thank you for helping to fill in while Eric was absent, and I guess we can, uh, we can go ahead and close out the show. 
So thanks again to Howard Bihar for spending more time than he planned with us tonight, and also to the folks in this room earlier in the program. As always, special thanks to my co-host, I'm Philip Lynn, and this is Jim, DC Radio Live. We broadcast live every Wednesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern, after about an hour every week. So be sure to visit us live to participate in the chat room and watch the live video feed. If you miss the live broadcast, audio archives are available online. If you like uh, this podcast, you can see the live video live. Until next week, we will have, oh gosh, I think we'll have four guests, twice as many as tonight.